This letter was written by Trungles, who is a Vietnamese-American comic, comic book artist and illustrator working out of the Twin Cities in Minnesota. Dear liberal allies, you and I learned very different things in very different ways. If you didn't live an experience, then step aside. We students of color, gay students, trans students, children of immigrants and refugees knew this stuff before our professors told us what to call it. We learned it from the bottom up. You learned it another way. You received a set of keywords and a list of definitions. Your learning was, in all likelihood, here is this word. This is what this word means. For you, it was xenophobia, a strong fear or dislike of people from other countries. For us, it was xenophobia, the time that boy in my kindergarten class spat on me because I couldn't speak English yet. Or when I saw that clerk yell at my mom in the grocery store because her English wasn't clear enough. For you, it was racism, unfair treatment of people who belong to another race, violent behavior towards them. For us, it was racism. That one time I saw that manager tell that sales girl to follow my dad around at Kohl's. Or that one time my neighbor's kid got shot by the police and they tried to cover it up by convincing everyone he was in a gang because he was Hmong, but we knew he wasn't. Or the time my dad told me I shouldn't rollerblade to the library because I'm not white and it's not safe for me. For you, it was homophobia, a strong dislike or fear of homosexual people. For us, it was homophobia, that time in the sixth grade when Ryan shoved me against a glass door and banged my face in it while yelling faggot at me until the teacher stopped him or when my Catholic high school's president told me that although he loved me as a child of God, he still believed I was sinful. For you, it was classism, prejudice or discrimination based on social class. For us, it was classism, the time when my best friend came over to hang out and her parents didn't want her to come over again because they didn't like our neighborhood. Or that one time when my friends had no idea what food stamps looked like and I was too embarrassed to explain what they were. So while you were learning that these academically framed phenomena were real problems, we were getting figurative name tags for awful things that we already knew. Your weekly vocabulary list was, to us, just a hollow shadow of our lived experience. When you step out of class, you get to say, oh, awesome, I'm learning how to be a good ally and a better human being. This will help me. For us, it's more like, ah, so that's what they're calling it nowadays. When exactly did they say change was going to come for us? Before I begin my sermon, I'd like to offer a brief prayer May the words of my mouth and the meditations on my heart be of service to all who hear them this morning. Amen. She said to me, whatever you do, pray 
first. The woman who said that to me was from Dandora, which is one of the worst slums in Nairobi, Kenya. Over 700,000 people live in Dandora, and 90%, that's 90% of them are unemployed. The only kind of living that most people make consists of picking through the trash that the city routinely dumps there for plastic and metal that can be resold. That's how 90% of Dandora's residents make a living. For those who don't know, and as that introduction may have suggested, I just returned from a trip to Kenya. I went as the chaplain for a group of students from Andover Newton Seminary. That's my other job. I'm a campus minister for seminary students at Andover Newton. Um, I want to start by saying that Kenya is a beautiful, beautiful and complicated country. I would have to preach probably a month or more of sermons to fully unpack the experiences that I had. And don't get any ideas, Nathan. <laughs> but it was an amazing, amazing trip. And I've only been back for a few days, and I'm still very much in the tender place of processing it. So while we were there, we visited communities and towns all over Kenya, meeting people from different local ethnic groups, learning about education and job training initiatives, and really just attempting to grasp what life was like living in a developing country. For me and most of my group, it was the first time we had ever been to the continent of Africa. The woman who told me to pray first was a Muslim and ran a nonprofit called the Dandora Women's Foundation, which trained the women of that community for paying jobs. They also created schools for children and facilitated community health initiatives. We met women like this all over Kenya, working to support the, their fellow women and those women's children to get educated, to find jobs, to put food on their table, to help free them from the gender oppression that was profound in that country, and just to make their lives better. Now, of all the words I could pick to describe my journey, it's a word we actually already heard this morning from Renee, humbling tops that list. Not just because I, work, I met so many people that were working so hard to make their lives better, although that is a big part of it. But if I'm being honest, Africa made me really uncomfortable in ways that I couldn't have anticipated and had a really hard time processing. On one level, I was physically uncomfortable. We couldn't drink the water, we couldn't use it to wash our faces or brush our teeth. So even though I could take a shower in the water, it wasn't supposed to get on my face, and therefore I never really felt clean. The knowledge that drinking it would make me sick really got in the way of my ever feeling clean. So because of that, I went through dozens of bottles of water while I was there, creating more plastic waste in those 10 days than I probably have in an entire year. We're all so good here about not using single-use plastic, so being there and going through all that water was really hard. Another source of my discomfort was the dust. Kenya, especially in the towns and cities, is a very dusty place. It's red clay dust, and it felt like I was breathing tons of it into my lungs, so much so that I developed a cough after a few days. In order to get all the, to all the places we wanted to visit, we spent at least a few hours on the road every day. 
Only a few major highways in Kenya are actually paved, so those roads are lined with trucks. So in addition to the dust, I also felt like I was constantly breathing in diesel fumes. So below all of that physical discomfort was my discomfort with my discomfort on a few levels. First, there was my whiteness. I was one of, the, of a few white people on the trip itself, and one of the few white people I saw my entire time in Kenya. I was stared at a lot in a way that I am not accustomed to, in a way that made me profoundly uncomfortable. I've never felt so conspicuous in my entire life, especially around children. They stared at me as if I had three heads. Now granted, fair skin, freckles, red hair, I stood out, more so than some of the others on the trip, but still, I like to think that I can connect with kids, that, that I can make them laugh and make them smile, but they stared at me with this wariness and unease that really, really affected me. So after a while, I started feeling like I was some kind of menace to them, and I kept my distance. A constant companion to the discomfort with my whiteness was a discomfort with my privilege. Sure, I was a minority there, a white person in a world of black people, but that doesn't, under, doesn't mean I understand what it means to be a minority. I wasn't receiving the same treatment as many black people receive in America. I wasn't being discriminated against. I wasn't subject to violence or oppression because of my skin color. Quite the opposite, I was being driven around in a van. I was given bottles of clean drinking water wherever I went. I met the kindest people who welcomed us into, our, into their homes, gave us gifts, fed us. I was treated practically like royalty. So all of this made me incredibly uncomfortable and brought me to a place of humility that I don't think I've ever known before. And I'm, as I said, I'm still very much in that place, tenderly trying to process my feelings about Kenya. In a way, though, this is all good, very, very good, because the point of a border crossing immersion trip, which is what this trip is called, is to confront your own privilege. The point is to put you in a place where you are being pushed outside of your comfort zone and challenging you to stay with that discomfort that that discovery creates. So reckoning with my privilege in Kenya forced me to accept a few truths, and the first probably the hardest one, was that I don't have a right to be comfortable. Comfort is not a right, it's a privilege. Many of us enjoy a great deal of comfort in this country of ours, but many don't. And getting even the tiniest taste of what it means to not have comfort was pretty distressing. Another truth was the importance of embracing the humility of not knowing not knowing what it means to live in poverty, not knowing what it lives to mean in a country of profound gender oppression, not knowing what it means to be African. And to echo the reading we just heard this morning, not knowing what it means to be a person of color, to be gay or trans, to be an immigrant or a refugee, to be anything other than what I am, which is a cisgendered, straight, white American woman. In the Unitarian Universalist faith, we'd like to talk about unity a lot, about how we're all human beings with inherent worth and dignity. And that's true. 
I believe that very deeply in my soul. But sometimes I think that message often gets a little muddled in with a slightly different message, one that also seeks to unify us, but in a way that sort of lumps us together in ways that aren't really true. Messages that say, we're all in the same boat here, or what unites us is far greater than what divides us. I've made those statements myself, probably in a few sermons. But I think that's not really a fair statement. Yes, we're all human beings. Yes, we all need things like food and shelter and love and community. But to say we're all the same ignores the complex social, political, and cultural systems that shape us and make us see the world differently. We're not all in the same boat. There are many, many different kinds of boats. Our experiences of this world are different because we are different. There is so much that I don't and can't possibly know about living in this world in bodies and identities and cultures that are different than my own. Listening to the stories of the Kenyans that I met taught me that truth in a far deeper way than I think I've ever contemplated before. And that was humbling, to be sure. But, and this is a good but, resting in that humility of not knowing actually brought me comfort. Admitting my discomfort actually provided me a certain amount of solace. Because we can't know what we don't know, but we can listen in humility. We can lean forward and try to understand. There's a certain freedom in admitting that you don't know, that you can't understand, but that you want to try and learn. That you're willing to sit in your own discomfort and get curious about it. Kenya taught me that there's a both and at work here, not an either or. That I can be uncomfortable and curious. That I can be unsettled and want to learn. The scholar and author, Robin D'Angelo, wrote a book called White Fragility that if you haven't read, I suggest you do. Um, and she says the key to moving forward is what we do with our discomfort. So we can use it as a door out. We can blame the messenger and disregard the message. Or we can use it as a door in by asking, why does this unsettle me? What would it mean for me if this were true? I'm just beginning to process what unsettled me about Kenya. So, spoiler alert, I don't have answers to those questions quite yet. Give me a week or two. But I know, as I'm sure you do, that we can't ignore or wish away racism, transphobia, and all the other means of cultural oppression that are present in our world. It is a long road to even coming to grips with that oppression and privilege in our country alone, let alone across the world. But I believe that the discomfort is the doorway. The unsettling awareness of privilege is the key. So I'm here to say that it's okay to be uncomfortable with your discomfort. It's okay to be distressed by the idea of privilege. It feels sometimes like a very recent phenomenon, but the truth is it's always been there. We just haven't seen it. So, where is the solace in this work? Where do we gain strength and support that allows us to sit in that discomfort? For me, my faith provides me with a great deal of solace. That which I call God guides me and accompanies me everywhere I go. The truths of my own personal faith 
what I believe, who I pray to, and the grace I find in those prayers are the things that hold me through the discomfort and struggle. I know that I am, I am loved just as surely as you are loved, and that brings me peace. And that, surprisingly, that was the place where I was able to connect with so many of the people I met in Kenya. I talked with women whose faith carries them through the struggle and towards the justice that they're fighting for in their communities. The faith that holds them through hardships that I couldn't even begin to understand. Hunger and thirst, violence and despair. I met Christians, Catholics, Muslims, and people of indigenous faith, and they all expressed in their own way a sure and sincere faith in their faith in the truths that they believe that bond them to each other, that bond them to their God. So my question for you is, what is your faith? What is that which holds you in the struggle and that which sits with you in the discomfort? Now, we're Unitarian Universalists, so I expect and hope that this is a very diverse list, that we are all in many, many different boats when it comes to what our faith is. So for you, what are the truths that you can hold on to, that see you through the struggle, that bond you to this community and to each other? I invite you to think about that, to articulate that for yourself, and let that faith guide you and comfort you, especially in those moments where you experience the humility of unknowing. I asked the Muslim woman from the Dandora community what her faith was and how God showed up for her. I asked her where God was and she responded immediately by saying everywhere. God is everywhere. Everywhere I go in Kenya, God is with me. And no matter what I do in Kenya, I pray first. What you should do, she says to me, what everyone should do is pray first. So friends, much like I did at the beginning of this sermon. Whatever your faith, whatever your truths, whatever holds you through the struggle, whether it's God or reason or something else, I invite you to pray first. Pray to that which guides you and holds you. Pray to that which helps you find comfort in the discomfort. Pray to that which lets you sit in the humility of not knowing so that you can lean forward and try to understand. Pray first, friends. Amen.